Sonoma, California. Good morning. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted at KPCA LP Petaluma. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the rabbi of B'nai Israel Jewish Center in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. We just had a little change in our program here today. We've usually had lots of time to get set up, and this morning you didn't hear any music because we didn't get it set up in time. There's another program before us. But we're here today, and it's great to welcome our listeners and also to welcome to our studio during the first half of our program, David Perry, who happens to be the son of William J. Perry, former Secretary of Defense in the Clinton administration. David, it's great to have you here in the studio today. Thank you, Rabbi Ted. I'm glad to be here. It's great to have you here. And um, you live here in Petaluma. I do. I moved here six years ago from the D.C. area. Wow. Wow. From the uh, fire into the fright. No, no. I guess, <laughs> I guess we can't go that way here. Um, yeah, so uh, you're, uh, let's talk a little bit about your background, and then we'll get into your father's project and into some of the issues. But what's, what's your background, and what are you doing here in Petaluma? I know you're connected with the Unitarian group here in town, so let's spend a couple of minutes on that. Sure. Um, well, I actually am a native Californian. I grew up in the Bay Area, but went east to, to college and then back to California for graduate school, and then back east for professional life, where I was a professor. I taught pharmacology at George Washington University for 30-some years. Got tired of that, got, got old, decided to retire, and, of course, came west again. Uh, my family is out here. My wife's from the, the area as well, so it was pretty inevitable we'd end up in California. And we got in here just in time before things got totally crazy in the housing market. So, Yeah, that would have been a better time to arrive than right now. It's pretty complicated these days. That's right. Pretty complicated. And I am at the Unitarian Universalist of Petaluma. I currently am serving as board president there, uh, which is a fun job. <laughs> well, this guy over here next to me uh, helping with the sound, with the engineering today, his, he was my board president too, and he survived, see? He looks healthy. <laughs> Actually, my father uh, served that same position at the Palo Alto Unitarian Church when I was growing oh, up. Oh, really? So I guess okay. it's in the blood. It's in the blood. That is amazing. That's great. So, your father, this project, it's called the William J. Perry Project, and you're intimately involved with it and it takes up your time and energies. What's, uh, tell us a little bit about this project, the passion that your father has for it, etc. Sure. Uh, for me, it was, a, it was a wonderful thing to be able to spend my time doing upon retirement. I was one who dreaded the idea of stopping working with nothing to do, and that turned out not to be a problem because I immediately came out here and joined my father in this project with this rather unusual name, the William J. Perry Project. We, we weren't too creative when it came to naming it. <laughs> It's really just a family operation, but it, what it represents is his sort of organized version of doing what he had already been doing with sort of the remainder of his life, which is essentially dedicated to educating the public both in this country and the world 
uh, as a whole on the continuing dangers of nuclear weapons. That's his really his passion in life, I think. I think he's, he talks about himself as an ex-Cold Warrior, as someone who was there during the Cold War and, and uh, playing an active role in the Cold War uh, in a number of ways. And now on the, uh, the end of his career, he is sort of going the other direction, trying to alert people to these dangers and essentially as almost as an anti-nuclear activist, um, which is quite a change for him and one that I'm thrilled to be able to join him. So where is he these days? What's, uh, where does he live in the area here? He lives in Palo Alto, which uh-huh. is where I grew up. So he's sort of back home, if, if you will. Um, uh, he lives in a, a senior home in Palo Alto, but he is extremely active. Actually, as we speak, he is in Rome at a meeting called the Luxembourg Forum that meets every year. It's really, the names are deceptive. What it is is a group of Russians and a group of Americans and, and Western Europeans who conduct what's called more or less track two diplomacy. They're trying to maintain a dialogue mostly about the nuclear issues, trying to keep an open line to intellectuals and defense persons and security people in Russia uh, talking about nuclear weapons. And that's one of his concerns right now is we really have almost no constructive dialogue going with our primary adversaries. <laughs> How much commentary can we make on the primary, on that relationship? Well, there's a lot of, fun. these days, uh, that has some overtones, of course. <laughs> right, right, right. Yes, but, it, so, so I think you said he's 92 now, right? He'll be 92 in October, wow, that's right. he's still traveling and doing his thing. And that's well, he just had a major back operation, so we weren't so sure what would happen, but it was a big success, mm-hmm. and so he's been overseas twice since that operation in March, so I guess he's recovered. So just in, in, as a general observation, I, I admire the notion that someone who's reached that stage of life can still work on the things that he's passionate about and make try to make a difference in the world. In this, in this world today, it's tough to make a difference. It's tough in this world. Yeah, I, 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 was, I was really inspired by exactly what you're saying there. I mean, he says over and over again that he's doing it because of his grandchildren and great-grandchildren, and he wants to see a world that they would want to live in, and it's increasingly difficult that with, with the political changes and the climate changes, uh, issues. Uh, it's 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 a frightening world, and this is just one more aspect of that. And he's trying to do his part on. So, in in the in the scope of so many things in the world that are challenging these days, um, and probably forever they've been challenging, but in particular to these days, uh, climate change, uh, poverty. You know, where, where, how do you pick this particular field? Obviously, the world is at stake in this particular area of nuclear armaments. Well, that's a very good point. The consequences. I mean, it's one of the clearly existential problems we have. Climate change, no question, although it's a little bit slower. I mean, a nuclear war would be instantaneous. Then we wouldn't have to worry too much about climate there change. There goes climate change concerns. There you go. Yeah, um, there we go. Uh, and I, admittedly, I have an interesting perspective because my daughter is now working with us as well. So we have three generations uh, in the family uh, working on this problem, and she has chosen to uh, create a podcast. So I've gotten into, I guess, radio's cousin, if you will. I spent yesterday re-recording some of her pieces for this podcast. So she brings a millennial perspective to the problem, and she points out how much when they she grew up. 
nuclear war and the Cold War were a thing of the past and one that they don't, don't pay much attention to. And I think my father would say that's one of his main targets. He wants to get young people thinking about the issues that my generation at least was aware of. But when we grew up, we had duck and cover drills. We had anti-nuclear protests. There was a whole several generations of people who had that at least in our consciousness. Her generation, that was, that was gone. They didn't think about it. And one of his major points is the danger has not gone away. And in some ways, you could argue that it's more dangerous today than it was in the Cold War. Yeah, as a side note to duck and cover drills, the children in schools now are doing active shooting, shooters hiding drills. You know, lights out, duck under the desks in the corner. Different generation of uh, down-home issues. Right, and, and you and I, of course, just went through a duck and cover uh, presentation from the Petaluma Police just yes. a couple weeks ago, which was very sobering. Uh, very sobering, time. very sobering. So... So the, the William J. Perry Project, what, what's, what, what is it? What's going on? Uh, where do you find out about it? Uh, uh, who are you touching? How are you doing it? Sure. All of those questions. Well, I can say I'll, I'll give you our website. It's wjperryproject.org. Uh, and most of the things you would want to know are on the website. You can also follow uh, William Perry on Twitter, which is essentially, my, again, that's my daughter, she handles the Twitter she account. The Twitter account. Uh, she's got to learn. She has learned how to think and write like he would in terms of Twitter uh, announcements. Uh, and we actually have a big following. Uh, that's that's exciting for those who keep track of these things. Uh, but what our main project now? Our, I guess our main focus has always been educational. We've been trying to create, as they call it now, content. We've been trying to create content that can be accessed by anyone or as many people as possible to bring people into awareness of some of the issues uh, surrounding nuclear weapons. One of the things that, that we're doing on this podcast, we interviewed some people from Hawaii who went through the frightening uh, missile alert uh, last January. Yeah, I was there a few days before I had left already. Ah, yes. <laughs> well, the couple that we interviewed, uh, by coincidence, were very knowledgeable about the nuclear issue. They had been studying this and doing documentary films and interviewing persons for a number of years. So this couple was heightened, had heightened awareness, if you will. But nevertheless, they're just two citizens fearing that this is the end of the world. And their, their testimony is just extremely moving, despite the fact that it was not really... a we know now that was not an issue. There was no concern. But we also know that there have been at least five false alarms that involved the military that were not civilian false alarms. And my father went through one himself in 1979 when he worked in the Carter administration, where we got an alert that Russian missiles were on their way. The call went into the White House. Uh, Brzezinski, who was the national security advisor, was convinced this was real. He decided not to wake his wife because he thought that would be the kinder thing to do, to not let her in on the last minutes of, of their life together. He came within a minute of calling President Carter and starting the process to uh, launching missiles. When they got the call, oops, it's a false alarm. There was someone who had put a training tape into the system instead of the real uh, operating tape. But the point of that is we rely on systems and people to keep us safe and to run this nuclear uh, enterprise. But the problem is that all systems have faults, and all people have 
the ability to make errors, and that's always going to be the case. We saw it. That was, in my mind, the message of the Hawaii alarm, which is, okay, it was a simple error, but simple errors occur, and they occur everywhere and every every time, and we can not protect ourselves from those kinds of things. And that, in my father's opinion, I think is probably the most dangerous thing that we face now, which is we have these god-awful weapons which could end civilization, but the control of them is in the hands of people who make mistakes and systems that are prone to, to errors. And now we have, by the way, an additional thing that didn't exist in his days, which are cyber attacks. So we have we are vulnerable to being spooked or having incorrect information entered into the system. And there's a lot of ways in which that could cause havoc. It's pretty easy to imagine, I think. Oh, yeah, it is. It's actually easy. If they can get into Defense Department, if they can get some sure. of the national security uh, files, etc., of course. Well, we've seen just break after break, and, and you know, my father's comment was that the, the uh, for the most part, the military is not that much more secure than the average bank, and we know how well that's worked. You know. Yeah. So, so the the main source of the public work is through the website and the courses or uh, lectures, classes in different universities? The short answer is yes. Okay, <laughs> okay. Uh, the website is sort of the hub for everything where we can we can put information on it. And, and we have a blog there where we put, we post news articles, we post articles that other people written for us. Um, We've created two online, free online courses that are still available they, with the help of Stanford University. And anyone who wishes can take those. One is a sort of a general look at the nuclear world. Um, and the second one focuses, focuses on the idea of a nuclear terrorist attack, which is one, one of my father's, as he calls them, nuclear nightmares that he has. Um, the potential of a terrorist group getting a hold of a crude nuclear weapon and then detonating it in this in our scenario in Washington, D.C., and then holding the world for ransom at that point, uh, saying we've got more of these bombs and you have to do what we say. It's a, it's a pretty unbelievable uh, scenario until you start going through the, the plausibility, and it turns out it's not that implausible at all that that could happen. It sounds like you're describing a novel, uh, a spy novel from the uh, yeah. genre out yeah. there that tells these stories. I think Clancy wrote one uh, somewhat similar to that. But but there is a basis for this. So his concerns are either that type of scenario or more, I think more plausible is a blunder scenario. When, when we're threatening fire and fury, when we're rattling our sabers at Russia, just like they're doing back at us, that leads to situations where somebody may make a miscalculation or a mistake something can happen in error and could quickly escalate. His main concern uh, over the North Korea the last couple of years is exactly that. Not that they had any intent to initiate an attack. That would be suicide on their part. And this is, these are, despite being evil people, are rational actors. And I think it's, I think it's reasonable to assume they have no intent on committing suicide. However, it is not difficult to imagine a scenario in which things spiraled out of control after an incident of some kind. So how would you deal with the piece of, uh, well, if these other nations have it, we need to have it as a deterrent, or that they're, you know, the whole notion of nuclear deterrent, of 
the way you can be strong in the world is to make sure you have the weaponry and the tools available to, quote, protect yourself, to intimidate others so that they will not want to be attacking us. So how do you deal with that? Deterrence is, is presumably our rationale for having these weapons. Uh, I think if you listen or read a lot of things that are out there today, you, it's easy to forget that. Uh, a lot of people will talk about these weapons as actual weapons of war. There's a big difference between saying these are just big bombs that we could use or these are meant to be a deterrent. And if you really believe in the ter- deterrence, that means they're not meant to be used. They're meant strictly to prevent someone from attacking us. So then you got to ask the question, well, what do you need to accomplish that goal, to deter someone from attacking you? And really, most of the analyses would say you need enough weapons that are survivable to say we can, we can wreak havoc on you if you attack us. Now, do you need, how many do you need from that? The analyses I've seen vary, but most of them are in the range of maybe 50, 100 weapons. That's, that's an awful lot, 50 to 100 thermonuclear weapons, modern nuclear weapons, would utterly destroy any country on Earth, um, probably lead to a nuclear winter and, and unbelievably devastating consequences. But what, we, what do we have, in fact? We have thousands, thousands. Now, we're down a lot from the peak of the Cold War, where it was up to 70,000 in the world, which is just an obscene number. But both us and Russia have upwards of 5,000, which is way, way, way more. And I think the more important point is we are now embarking on a huge upgrade and expansion of our nuclear forces that I don't think most people in this country know about. We're, we're committing upwards of $1 to $2 trillion, trillion dollars just for new nukes. Now, some of it is under the nice name modernization, which sounds like a pretty anodyne concept. Let's modernize our weapons. And to some extent, that is happening. We do have a lot of old equipment in the field. But what this is, is really an, it's an open checkbook for the military-industrial complex to just uh, go to town and get what they want. And that's exactly the way it's working out. Ironically, this started in the Obama administration, and to some extent did that as a political payoff to be able to uh, allow Congress to agree to, to ratify the new START treaty with Russia back in his first term, which was a, a good outcome, but the, the, the price may have been much too high. So we are now embarking on this, and of course the Trump administration has enthusiastically embraced it and expanded it even further. So, and what would we say about the, I guess they could call it sometimes the rogue nations out there of uh, India, Pakistan, uh, Iran, of North Korea, sure. uh, uh, where we have even less, obviously, clearly less control. You know, perhaps with Russia we can negotiate, but you know, what policies and how do we, because for them that's a symbol of their strength, sure. to be able to have those things. So it's a difficult question for sure. Um, on the other hand, the more that we build our nukes, the less argument we have for other countries for deciding that they should go nuclear. We're, we're claiming that these are valuable things, and we're saying, but you shouldn't have them. So it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's a difficult argument. We're good people. We can have them. Exactly. We can't. Right. Exactly. Well, actually, my father was involved in, in very actively in the 90s in, in negotiating with North Korea and had came very close to what he felt what is a deal that might have maybe stopped them or certainly slowed them down. Um, 
the Clinton administration went out of office and George W. Bush came along and decided to abandon that. And that was a, a real opportunity lost. We'll never know, but uh, that, that's one example. I also feel the, uh, the Iran negotiation is another interesting example there. We actually had something in place which, while far from a perfect agreement, very clearly was keeping Iran, certainly slowing them way down uh, and keeping them... Uh, we had pretty intrusive inspections associated with that. And that people forget that that's with the Russians as well. Our agreements there, probably the most important aspect, is the ability for both sides to go and inspect what the other people are doing. So our intelligence agencies know what the other side has got and, what, and if there's a problem, what they might be doing. As far as the rogue nations in general, I think it's reasonable to say these are not threats, direct threats, to the United States, despite Kim Kim's uh, fire and fury rhetoric. And it is clear that, it, you know, eventually they might have the ability to, to lob a couple missiles our way. But the implication is that they would be doing that is, is, is something I don't accept. Um, and again, deterrence is, is going to mostly work there. India and Pakistan is a special case. And it's a special because, case because their interest is each other. And there, many people that I've talked to feel that is actually the single most dangerous um, nuclear situation in the world. And then, and particularly with Pakistan, they have a very unstable government. They have rogue elements in the military who are very sympathetic to the terrorists. Um, it's not at all implausible that, that something could go wrong there. And both sides have a pretty formidable nuclear arsenal. We actually created a little video, a little five-minute video that people can see on our website, sort of illustrating what might go wrong there. They have a border clash. There's a um, Pakistan is, will lose, as they almost always do in these situations. Uh, but their, their policy, their stated policy, is to use nukes if that's happening. If they're invaded and they're losing, they will propose to use nukes. And in our scenario, they, they bring out their nukes, and one, one has exploded accidentally, but no one realizes it was an accident. Boom, things escalate. I mean, it's interesting as you're describing that situation is that that doesn't rise to the top in the news media because the Iranian situation, sure. uh, North Korea is on the front pages all the time uh, about these uh, about the nuclear issues. But the India-Pakistan peace has kind of been there and behind the scenes, so to speak. Right, right. Uh, it's interesting when you mention uh, one country we don't talk a lot about here is China. I mean, they've had nuclear weapons for a long time. They have an interesting approach to it. First of all, they're one of the few countries that have continuously declared no first use. So they have made it their policy that they will never initiate the use of nuclear weapons. By the way, we have not done that, mm -hmm. uh, which is an interesting difference. Uh, they also don't have a huge nuclear arsenal. I mean, they have, a, they have a certainly substantial one, but they don't have one that is designed to be overwhelming. I mean, they're not, they're not of the ability to, well, if you have 500, we have to have 600. Or if you have 1,000, we have to have 1,200. They don't take that approach, whereas the Americans and the Russians seem to have this competitive approach. Yeah, I mean, the, the idea that the only way you can have uh, protection is to have more than the other guy. Well, we already have more than enough to completely destroy civilization, so I'm not quite sure what more we what get. What more you need? How many times do you need to, to uh, right. bomb the rubble, as they right. say? 
So are, are the materials, are, is there any work being done in schools, any work being done in universities around this project? Or we've, tr we've tried. We've created some materials. Uh, uh, we've, we've worked with a, uh, a guy at Stanford who has connections to high schools, high school history, high programs, high school uh, social studies. And we've tried to create some materials for them. It's a little tricky trying to work with curriculum. So curriculums in high schools are very rigid for the most part. And you have to f find wedge ways of getting this kind of information into them. Uh, maybe talking about World War II or the Cold War uh, in a, from a history perspective. Uh, so that's something we would love to do more of but haven't, haven't had a big impact so far. Yeah, so I mean, as, as you know, we have uh, just a couple of minutes left, but just thinking about this topic, uh, it's in some ways it's so overwhelming and it's very Absolutely. threatening, obviously, to the existence of, of our world and civilization. And yet, where we become preoccupied with all of the other things that are happening, it's, it's something, it reminds me every time I think about this. Uh, it reminds me of the stack of mail we get in December for <laughs> contributions to all the different needs in the world, from diseases to hosp you know, hospitals, uh, this and that, and trying to make choices about, well, where, you know, is it better to give uh, $5 to 20 charities or $500 to whatever. Uh, I have a lot of checks dated December 31st. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I know that well. And those are decisions we all make. And yet, this this topic really literally looms over civilization, all of us, yeah. all, all yeah. human beings in the world, as does the climate change issue, which is uh, we're going to talk a little bit about it in the second segment today. So, uh, yeah, I I really appreciate this work. Um, any final thoughts that you wanted to share before we wind down our program? Well, I, uh, our most current project is, I think I referred to earlier, is a podcast. It's called At the Brink, and it will be coming out probably late summer, I hope. Uh -huh. uh, that My daughter is going to be the host, but we have a lot of pretty interesting people. We're about to go interview uh, several Hibakasha. These are uh, people who survived either the Hiroshima or Nagasaki bombings. Uh -huh. And, of course, they're now dying off because of the because of age, but there's some very interesting people out there we're going to interview just for their experiences in that. Uh, we have a lot of other pretty interesting shows, and I, I would ask people just to keep your eyes out. If you listen to podcasts, look for At the Brink. Uh, I think it's going to be a pretty good show. All right, and I just want to remind everybody, if they forget the name of the website, it's the William J. Perry Project, and if you just uh, search for that on whatever you're search mechanism is, you'll get the link to the actual website. Right, it's wjperryproject.org. It's .org. Okay, well, thank you so much, David Perry, for you, being Rabbi with Ted. us today and bringing the message. You are listening to Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCA LP Petaluma.
Welcome back to the second segment of Talking with Rabbi Ted on KPCALP Petaluma. I'm Rabbi Ted Feldman, the Rabbi of the Israel Jewish Center in Petaluma and the chair of the Petaluma Community Relations Council. We're here in our second segment, and I want to welcome to our studio Celeste Chavez, uh, who is um, a recent graduate of uh, Casa Grande High School. When was it, Saturday morning or Friday night? Friday. Yes. Friday, okay. So you must be uh, feeling pretty good yep. after four years of that. And I invited Celeste uh, to be here with us today because she's an activist in her community, in her high school and in the community. And uh, we talked the last half hour with David Perry about nuclear arms and its threat to the world. And Celeste has picked up as one of her passions for activism uh, the issue of environment, and we'll get into more details of that as we unfold. But um, so, tell us a little bit about a little bit about your background and your family and the school and what your plans are and mm-hmm. all that kind of stuff, and then we'll move on to the big subjects. Yeah. So, as you said before, I'm a recent graduate of Casa Grande High School. Um, I kind of found, I've always had a sort of passion for the environment since I was a kid. Like, I would be picking up trash and stuff around my school, in elementary school, and I had this really influential fourth grade teacher who was also very passionate about the subject, and so she kind of got me intrigued on it. Um, But as the years went by, there was a certain course I took in high school. My junior year, I took um, AP Environmental Science, um, was my teacher, Mr. Adams, and he really um, kind of exposed me. The whole curriculum was really just an exposure of the human impact on the environment and how we are really influencing and how we kind of form the way, um, how it's really continuing and stuff. And so that really got me even more passionate about the field of environmentalism and environmental activism and the whole lifestyle. And from then on, that kind of segued into me being involved into the Environmental Club and becoming the president just this last year and doing different projects with that. Um, And our club was partnered with the Center for Climate uh, Protection and Eco to School. So our advisor was from there. So that's a little bit about um, my, my origins with the subject and how I became passionate about it. So, yeah. Wow, yes. So, so, but your school seems to have a, uh, a pension for activism, for p- kids getting, uh, students getting engaged in various topics. Yeah. You have a new principal there now, too, you mm-hmm. know, Dr. Dan Nostelman yes. is uh, the new principal. Um, I, and I think it's great that our community has a school where we are seeing students rising up and mm-hmm. uh, taking positions and learning things about things that make a difference in the world. I don't know if you got to listen to the first part of the program at all, but uh, it was about the, the threats of nuclear bombs and and all of that. And it's such an overwhelming issue, mm-hmm. just as the environmental piece is so overwhelming, because mm-hmm. it not only affects us in the United States, but mm-hmm. the world and all of human civilization. Mm-hmm. So I appreciate the passion that you have brought to it. And you have attached yourself to the Sunrise Movement? Yes. What is sun, What is the Sunrise Movement? So basically the Sunrise Movement is a youth-led um, political organization that's 
geared towards stopping climate change and combating it, really. It started in 2015. Um, it was a 501c4 political organization. So um, it was started by some of the leaders were Sarah Blaskovich, Blaskovich and Varshini Prakash. And so they kind of just started to kickstart this organization and movement. And it really just encourages people all across the world, um, but specifically right now it's a national movement, um, to combat climate change in whatever way they can, and specifically the youth. So, right. You don't have any idea why they chose the name Sunrise? Yeah, so I, it's just, uh, around this whole idea that the times that we're in, you know, it's, it's kind of a dark period of this fossil fuel use and this um, vast amount of carbon being released and all of the, this is a dark period for our, for our Earth and it's with the idea that um, once we can stop this um, destruction of our Earth and, and this kind of political dirty business that's happening, um, the sun will rise again. So mm -hmm. it's sort of that idea that, yeah. So, so most of the people involved are college, high school, uh, where does it, what's the range? It's really from all over. I mean, I've seen uh, kids as young as like five years old starting and like six or seven, eight, and then elementary school and high school uh -huh. and college. So it's like all over the place. So one of the things I noticed in looking at the uh, website for the Sunrise Movement is, uh, and it, it's just about how I react to a website there's no mention of any individual names on there. And I don't know if you've noticed that mm -hmm. at all when you look at it. But usually there's something that identifies uh, a board of directors mm -hmm. or a group of people, coordinating committee, uh, some people's names. Mm -hmm. But there, there was one mention to one of the founders mm -hmm. on there. And it, it always it felt like, well, what is this about? I mm -hmm. couldn't, it, it didn't have any people attached to it. It had, it had the cause and it mm -hmm. portrayed it very nicely and beautifully but it didn't have people attached. I don't know if anybody else has ever said that or heard that, but, and you don't need to comment if you don't want to on that. Yeah. Have you, any thoughts on that? Yeah, definitely. I think um, sort of one of the main principles is of the movement is that it's a mass movement. It's not just one individual uh -huh. person or certain individuals making a difference. It's a whole mass collectively making that difference and teaming up to make that difference. So I think it's more of like a, of trying to make it seem like we're all just one big group. Also within the movement, there are separate hubs that we uh -huh. have. So right here we have a Sonoma County hub, um, but there's m hubs all across the nation. So it's there are different leading groups, but they try we try to recognize ourselves as one. Yeah, they're looking for a regional director for California. So if you're out of school and you feel like you want a job to do it, we can, there you yeah, go. Yeah, right. There you go. <laughs> What are you doing for school? I am going to, so I'm going to UC Santa Barbara. Uh -huh. I'm going to study environmental studies. That's no surprise, yeah. right? That's <laughs> no surprise. So uh, the the Sunrise Movement is also attached to the Green New Deal, is it mm -hmm. not? Yes. Can you tell us something about the Green New Deal? Yeah, so the Green New Deal, originally Sunrise, they're kind of the first um, thing we were tackling. Um, when it was really introduced was to kind of expose candidates using fossil fuel money 
and um, like from the fossil fuel industry and also advocating for candidates for renewable energy. And right now there's kind of a more emphasis on the Green New Deal. I mean, it's a lot of people are like, what is the Green New Deal? What does it entail? It's more so trying to have a complete transformation of our energy um, in to renewable energy, 100% renewable energy in our nation. And with that, also expanding public transportation use and also creating jobs and um, strengthening our economy as well at the same time. So it's a whole lot of things. It's a whole lot of things. So it's, it's mm-hmm. actually not just about recycling no. and, uh, e- you know, and environmental, mm-hmm. per se, issues, but mm-hmm. it's about the effects that those issues will have on creating an equitable society for mm-hmm. us, right? Mm-hmm. So the Green New Deal, as I read the proposed re- you know, the resolution, uh, also includes um, livable wages yeah. and housing issues mm-hmm. and all of those kinds of things that would be important for a sustainable society. Yeah, right? it really does touch on a lot of socioeconomic factors. It's not just one environmental piece or it's not just about the environment because as we kind of all know the environmental issues are not just an environmental issue it's a racial issue it's um, a human rights issue they touch on a lot of different socioeconomic things so can I ask you to actually draw the line between those things that is how does how does the environmental issue affect racial socioeconomic issues how does that how are they all connected yeah, so the environmental issue, you can see that a lot of the times touching, I think a lot of people forget that environmental racism is a thing. Um, we see that in our own town, we're seeing that in our own town, you know, with the proposed Safeway gas station, um, and how at times these these buildings or certain projects are being constructed, and they're very close to one year by a marginalized group of people, uh, you know, like uh, as being done in our town, so things like that, and it's happened all throughout history, and it still continues to happen. And so that's just kind of an example. Okay, that is mm-hmm. that is a, a good example of that, and I think I, I have a feeling that the the broader community will need a, a clear understanding of that connection of how worrying about uh, carbon footprint and fossil fuels is affects the racial and the socioeconomic issues in our country. I think that's going to be, I, 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 I hope I understand it, and I, 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 I get it mm-hmm. the more I hear, such as we're talking, and we've talked before, uh, but I think that needs to get out there a lot more, and I know that's the purpose of the Sunrise Movement, yeah. which is to get those issues out there so it's clear that there are, aside from environmental consequences, mm-hmm about temperature and storms and water and rain and all that, there are socioeconomic and human issues that come right with it Mm -hmm. uh, as we unfold what this movement will be like and what we need to do. Yeah. So what what do people, what is is the Sunrise Movement asking people to do? What are the action things that we want to happen? So basically, the Sunrise Movement just encourages anyone to get involved in whatever way they can. Um, ideally, you can join a hub near you and stuff. And 
So a lot of the times there are a lot of different events happening, you know, in the political world right now. Uh Um, So there are sit-ins, there are protests that we organize. Um, There's different, so we've had Green New Deal town halls. We had one in Sonoma County a couple weeks ago um, with hundreds of people showing up. And so small things like that, just taking small actions apart in your community or county, um, city, and then how that just all comes together as one mass. Have you found a secret to getting people to come to those things who aren't already convinced that this is the right way to go? Sadly, no. I mean, it's hard to, you go to one of those events and you see that the majority of the people all look the same. Right, and they've been there before yeah. and you've seen them before. Mm-hmm. And so don't get frustrated by that mm-hmm. because that's the, it's going to be a lifelong course like that. Mm-hmm. But the fact is that all the people that gather there, people such as you and the others that have worked with you, know other people yeah. and have the chance to share. But at those events, I remember a couple of years ago, uh, we had an event to introduce the Muslim community in Petaluma to the broader community because of some of the anti-Muslim things that were happening in our country. And the fact was that the 350 people who came there were most likely all supporters of the Muslim community Mm -hmm. and respectful of the Muslim community before they walked in the door. And so it's a a challenge at times. And it can get discouraging, you know, how Mm -hmm. do we reach those other people? And that will be a challenge for almost any project, no matter what cause you're taking, uh, that would be a challenge in that. But you're right, that's the way it is. That's mm-hmm. the way it is. Um, one of the things I, I, that you and I were talking about the other day was uh, I've noticed in looking at the activism in the community and in the high school at Casa Grande uh, that many of them are the young women in the community. And kind of asking the question, are the young men engaged? So I wanted to put that out to you and see if you had any thoughts mm-hmm. about that. Yeah, so we have seen um, the people I work with and my co-organizers that all across the board, the majority of people activating and are uh, involved in these causes are women. Um, it's not to say it's a bad thing, but no, we've, sure. we've also kind of said, like, how do we get more men out here? How do we get more support? Like, We know there are, like, it's not that there aren't men um, being concerned about these issues, that there are, but they're just not showing up. And that's kind of a question that I'm sure a lot of different organizations have had, no matter the cause or the issue they're advocating for. Um, It's a hard question as to why, but personally, I think that women just have almost mm, more of kind of geared towards an emotional attachment and so are more likely to activate and advocate because of the history of women traditionally have had to activate more than men. And being nurturing, caring yeah. about the world around and yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. yeah. And also with the women's rights and they've had kind of a we've had a kind of a history of having to step up and ask for what you want. And I'm not sure if men have had to do the same thing. Well, I'm glad you're stepping up, and I think it's wonderful that all the women who are stepping Mm -hmm. up and trying to make a difference in the world. Actually, it might be a good question to ask of some of the men, right? Mm -hmm. And why aren't they, why do they think 
other men are to, uh, you know, other men are to engage. Mm-hmm. But it's a, it's an interesting question. So one woman who has also come to the forefront of this entire Sunrise Movement is AOC, right? Mm-hmm. Alexandra uh, Ortesia Cortez, and. Uh, how does how do you all relate to her activity and what she's doing? So I have looked into a lot of you know like the political representatives and candidates, but I it's a difficult to sort of support wholeheartedly one candidate, right? Uh, because there are a lot of things going on that we also the public doesn't know about. Um, there can be a lot said of someone supporting a certain cause and wholeheartedly or 100%, but there may be other stuff going on, right? So I have seen her um, her support for the Sunrise Movement and the Green New Deal. Of course, she was one of the, the authors of the, of the Green New Deal. Um, so, I, But personally, I think what she's done so far is really inspiring. There are a lot of different um, sentiments towards her of saying that these, you know, these are too radical or these are not realistic or what she's doing is just isn't going to work. But, I mean, what she's done so far, she's really inspired and influenced a lot of the youth that's coming forward. And she is kind of a of a face for that. She is the youth also. Right, and she is the face, yeah. Mm-hmm. She is the face for it. Yeah, I think that's uh, that's important. Is the word politics, what's that word politics mean for you? Is that a good word, a bad word? Uh, oh, that's too, no, let's not get political. What, what does that word mean for you? Um, it's not a bad word. And okay. it's, I, don't, I wouldn't say it's a good word either. I okay. would say it's neutral. Okay. Um, but with things that have happened in the past, you know, recent elections and recent stuff that's been happening, I think people forget what politics is and they kind of um, blur it and make it a little more dirty than it needs to be. There's, you know, people have negative connotations towards it and that's why people often say, you know, like, oh, let's not talk about it then. Let's not talk about politics. Let's not get political. But I think it's a very important thing to do. Um, It's important and to talk about politics is to talk about the world because you can't just be ignorant and say, oh, I don't want to know what's happening because it's sad or it's negative. I don't want to hear about it. I mean, it's, it influences everyone. So I wouldn't say it's a bad word. I wouldn't say it's a great word. It's just what it is and it should be respected. It should be respected because politics does not have to be negative. Mm-hmm. There is, quote, dirty politics. Mm-hmm. Even that's a phrase we use, right? But politics is the system of getting different interests, different yeah. people to try to work together to make something hopefully positive mm-hmm. uh, happen in the world. So political, yeah, it has that connotation. Mm-hmm. And uh, unfortunately, the environmental, particularly the environmental issues, have become political issues. Yeah. And when... For me, in my background, I consider environmental issues just as uh, racial issues and all of those mm-hmm. issues in this Green New Deal. I consider them to be moral issues, yeah. issues of human rights, mm-hmm. issues of uh, what is right and what is wrong in the world. Mm-hmm. And um, 
it's a whole different take on that. Yeah. And I don't know if you, you I don't know if you are involved in a church or anything like that. And, but in you know, people often say, oh, the clergy person should never get involved in uh, in any mm-hmm. of these issues mm-hmm. because it's it's yeah. politics. Well, that's that's what it is. Yeah. You know. I remember I, I gave a many, 30 years ago, I w- was at an anti-nuclear rally then, mm-hmm. and they were trying, to, there had just been created the notion of a bomb that would only kill people but leave the building standing. I thought that was a wonderful idea, just just kill the people and leave the building standing, so I don't know who's going to live in them. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I went to an anti-nuclear rally, and I told my congregation about it, and they were upset because I got political. Right, because uh, yeah. I didn't think this was a good, a good moral thing to do mm-hmm. in the world, right? Mm-hmm. And um, and so the next week I spoke about Israel and my concern about Israel, and mm-hmm. then I said, at the end of it, if a nuclear bomb comes, we won't have to worry about this either. So I got yeah. my little dig into the community. Mm-hmm. So I think politics and the politics of the environment mm-hmm. is a, a really important piece of uh, our efforts that we, we can do. Yeah. So definitely. what would you like to ask people to do locally? What, what kinds of things would help? Um, there are a lot of different things. I mean, sometimes people think they have to go out and become an activist, but you can be an activist at home. You know, um, you can certainly get involved with the Sunrise Hub or any other. There are a lot of different organizations, also environmental organizations, Youth the Apocalypse, a lot of different ones. Um, but also just at home, obviously, recycle, reuse, reduce. Um, cutting down your carbon footprint is basically, like, the number one thing that we try to do. Um, look at how you're transporting yourself. Your transportation uses a big sector of carbon use and your carbon footprint. And going meatless, maybe. The meat industry is also very, very polluted in the atmosphere. Um, As I said, you can join a movement. You can be conscious of your water use and water conservation. Um, A lot of different small little details, like when you're washing clothes, you use cold water instead of hot water and stuff like that. And then also using biodegradable products, of course. There's small different things like that. I think uh, those are great, uh, and we have the opportunity here in Petaluma with our recycling system to be able Mm -hmm. to participate actively in our own lives uh, in uh, in this environmental movement. So, where do you see where do you see the next couple of years in this Sunrise movement? What do you think is going to happen, and where do you think you will be with it, and what do you want to happen for you? So, in the next couple of years, I mean, there's a lot of things happening right now in the world, and I definitely see that the movement isn't fading. I mean, um, there are different events that we're gearing up for. Um, September 20th to September 20th is a is a international worldwide uh, climate strike again. Um, that's... Uh, Sunrise is involved with that, but a lot of other organizations are, and it's just kind of calling all people, not just students, not just youth, but workers, adults, everyone, on for a global climate strike. Um, so that's another event that's happening. I know we're kind of preparing to see if we can go to the Democratic National Debates in um, Detroit also. So I definitely see that the movement it will continue. It will prosper. There are a lot of different hubs rising up also. And, and I hope that we can also make some sort of influence, some sort of representatives and candidates as we are now. The Green New Deal, a lot of them are signing off. 
um, in advocating for these issues and continue to do so. I'm not exactly sure I can say this will be passed or this, you know, but I definitely see that in the future. It will continue to prosper. Yeah, and I, I think that uh, one another source of future change is going to be in the school systems yeah. and in the education, not just at the high school level and the opportunities that you have had at the Casa Grande to be active in this, yeah. but also in the elementary schools of teaching the kids about environmentalism at, at the appropriate level yeah. of things that children can do uh, to make a difference so that when they get older, they yeah. will continue. That's a natural part of their life to not use plastic straws or yeah. whatever the it is that we can make little bits of difference. And if everybody does something, it, it will help a lot. Yeah, there's that. definitely a big, a big opportunity that the school system has, the education, public education system has to start to ingrain that into cu curriculum. Um, yeah, I hope. Yeah, and the uh, Petaluma Community Relations Council, you uh, did come to our last coordinating committee mm -hmm. meeting, and we are looking at a series of programs, hopefully next year, we're still planning, mm -hmm. but that will be on sustainability and affordability in Petaluma, mm -hmm. and hope you will, although you'll be away at college, mm -hmm. hope you will be uh, able to connect with us and, and be involved in some way in yes, what we're definitely. doing because we do want, uh, aside from the cost of living issues and livable wages, which are part of the uh, Green New Deal mm -hmm. issues, we also want to look at environmental issues just in our local community. Yeah. Uh, uh, you are out there trying to change your world and the world, the big world, mm -hmm. uh, and we also want to make sure that we're working locally yeah. uh, to make sure that uh, something happens here, because this is where we are, and mm -hmm. this is where we have some influence, we hope, yeah. and some ability to affect people's lives. Yeah. So I think it's really an important piece. And uh, any final notions you want to share with us before we finish up? Yeah, I just want to say that if anyone is interested in joining, you know, the Sunrise Movement, we have a local Sonoma County hub. And uh, um, as I said, we're planning for a September 20th global climate strike all across the world. So no matter what you can do, you can always do something. Okay, well, I think that's an important message. And I also want to say that uh, uh, we're grateful for somebody like you, a young person who has taken on these issues, uh, creating uh, a sense of activism and hope for the future. Mm -hmm. And uh, congratulations on your graduation from high school. Uh, Santa Barbara is a wonderful setting for school. The ocean yeah. is beautiful <laughs> there. Classes, you've got to get your great great stuff planned for your life yeah. and uh, want to wish you well and thank you for being on the program today. Thank and you. For our listeners, I hope you uh, take heart to some of the things that Celeste has had to share with us today on uh, Talking with Rabbi Ted. You're listening to KPCALP, Petaluma, California. We look forward to seeing you in our next program in two weeks. Thank you.